0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson.
1: For those of you that have been with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've been um, working through the book of Revelation, and specifically we're working through the letters to the different churches in the book, and we come now to uh, the church in Pergamum. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 12. Let me go ahead and get our notes up on the screen for us. We do have our notes available in our Google Drive if you'd like to follow along with the Uh, slides as well invite you to do that but let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 it says into the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even the days in even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We've already talked over the past couple of weeks about two churches leading up to the church at Pergamum. We talked about Ephesus, um, and Ephesus is kind of defined as um, a church that was reminded to love. They were doing a lot of great things. They were certainly valuing the importance of doctrine and theology, which we've had a chance to sing about this morning, the important truths, the important theology and doctrine that binds us uh, together as believers. Uh, Ephesus was great at that. They had lost their, their correct motivation for a lot of the things they were doing, though. While they were busy and active and faithful as a church, they were doing it for a wrong motivation, and Jesus writes to them to correct that motivation, reminds them to love faithfully, And challenges them that if they don't, that their uh, ongoing presence within that community would cease, that he would visit them and would uh, basically snuff out their light within that community. Last week, we talked about the church at Smyrna. We said that they are a church that's commended and not rebuked, that ultimately they were reminded that things aren't always as they seem. Uh, They were a church who uh, was under persecution, they were a church who seemed very poor, and yet. Jesus draws their attention to the spiritual realities of things that they are a church who is doing everything right. Um, that Jesus didn't have anything that they needed to address. Um, that they were very rich in spiritual blessings. That even in facing death, they were actually facing their greatest joy, and that was to be with Christ forever. And so we talked last week from a from an application standpoint that uh, we need to pray for those suffering around the world. We need to prepare now so that when suffering arrives, we are ready. Uh, We need to identify any compromises we've made to avoid persecutions now, and we need to endure general trials now, realizing it could be far worse than it is. And so a lot of good application points from last week. I hope that you're continuing to reflect upon those, um, and we'll continue to do so uh, leading up to our application Sunday next week. So uh, we will have application Sunday next week, and then um, we have small groups the week after, and we'll have some discussion points around what we've been talking about there as well, we come now to that church at Pergamum, and what I want to draw your attention um, to that teaching this morning i 'm going to try to get our notes back up there. All right, our summary sentence, even though a church may be faithful in many things, failing in a few things demands the repentance and action of the church. If a faithful witness is to be maintained and jesus 's judgment is to be avoided, even though a church may be faithful in many things. Failing in a few things demands the repentance and action of the church if a faithful witness is to be maintained and Jesus's judgment is to be avoided. For our kids, being obedient in some things isn't the same as being obedient in all things. Jesus calls us to be obedient in all things. We're looking at a church here who, I mean, at first glance, it's hard to imagine how they could really be rebuked They're enduring persecution and seemingly enduring it pretty well because some of them are making it all the way to death. Um, That under the intense pressure um, that's coming from the government and from that city and from the culture, they are enduring all the way until death. One individual is mentioned by name specifically that he held faithful to his witness and to his faith, made it to the end, and died for his faith. I mean, For a church to be that type of church, it's hard to imagine that anything could be criticized about them. And yet Jesus says, there's a few things that I have against you. Um, And so what we're going to find is that being great at some things doesn't alleviate being bad or poor at some other things, right? Like it doesn't cancel out. It doesn't negate being a failure in some of these things. And, And Jesus is very concerned about the lack of repentance regarding some compromise in the church the lack of action by others in the church who weren't necessarily compromising by doing these things but were compromising by tolerating them within the church and not dealing with them and not uh, at times if needed issuing church discipline towards those individuals. The action of the church was needed. The repentance of the church was needed if a faithful witness was to be maintained and Jesus's judgment to be avoided because there's a real threat at the end. And, and, and I was challenged this week just thinking the language at the end of this is something that oftentimes we would attribute to the God of the Old Testament, right? A God who would bring a sword and bring judgment and bring death potentially. That, that's the God of the Old Testament sometimes if we're not careful, right? This is Jesus of the New Testament, right? This is the last book of the New Testament and, and it's, it's very important for us to see that it's very relevant for us as a church today, that the threat of judgment is very real if certain things aren't dealt with swiftly um, and, and, and thoroughly where needed. So even though a church may be faithful in many things, failing in a few things demands the repentance and the action of the church if a faithful witness is to be maintained and Jesus's judgment is to be avoided. For our kids, being obedient in some things is not the same thing as being obedient in all things, some introductory notes for us, just so you understand the context of this city. Pergamum was an extremely, extremely religious city. Um, it was the uh, the location of many temples to false gods. So the Greek gods, Zeus and others, their temples were housed there. It was a focal point of worship within this city. Um, it was also a place that was really the first city to promote emperor worship. We've talked about this a little bit. We're going to talk about it a lot more when we get into Revelation because I think what a, a lot of what we see in Revelation is going to be attributed to the persecution that comes from the state, the government that would call its people to allegiance to it over God. All right? And so that was certainly true of the Roman Empire. We talked a little bit last week how Judaism was kind of grandfathered into the Roman Empire. They worshiped Yahweh. They were allowed to worship Yahweh. They could have their temples and their sacrifices. Um, Christianity was viewed as a new religion, and that's what the Jews wanted the Romans to believe, because if Christianity was not Judaism, then it didn't get to enjoy the same privileges of open worship towards their God they had to worship the emperor. And so the Jews were trying to convince the Romans that the Christians are different so that their religion would be stopped. Basically, the Jews were saying, kill all these people because they don't worship Caesar. Now, the Jews didn't worship Caesar. They didn't have to. They were trying to make it to where the Christians had to. They knew the Christians would not, and they would be killed for their faith. And Pergamum was probably the worst setting possible to be a Christian, and to want to avoid emperor worship. Okay, so we talked last week, Smyrna, right? We're told that Satan is aware of you. Satan's gonna throw you into jail. Satan's gonna persecute you. It's gonna be for 10 days. We talked about what that meant last week as well. Pergamum is described totally differently, right? Satan is aware of what you're doing. Why? Because Satan lives here, right? Like This is Satan's throne room. This is Satan's hometown, Pergamum. And the reason it's described that way, we'll talk about it a little bit more. The reason I think it's described that way is because of the intense emperor worship push that was being given in this city. That doesn't really connect with us, right? Like, like we, don't, we don't necessarily live in a, in a situation where we're demanded to give allegiance to the state in ways that would cost us our life. There are some countries around the world where that is the case. There are some countries around the world where the government demands such allegiance to it and enforces a religion upon its people that to deviate from that would cost you your life. But I can give you just a hint of this in, in our culture just by looking around and seeing how people react to anything that's perceived as unpatriotic. Think about it. There, there was a football player this year who, who refused to stand up for the um, national anthem and was just roasted in the media. Uh, people that had been following football were, were overly critical of this guy who decided I'm not gonna stand up for the the national anthem. I'm gonna gonna make a statement. I'm not happy with where our country's at, and so I'm going to do this. And we're not talking about whether that was right or wrong. I'm just saying that one action to not stand up, boom! Like, people were like, are you kidding me? Like, what are you even thinking? Like, we don't even know you, but we're angry at you, right? Like, we'll never meet you, but we hate you for not standing up for this song. Another example. um, I introduced the idea last year uh, with my teachers about whether or not we were saying the Pledge of Allegiance in class anymore because we hadn't, really been, um, we hadn't really been monitoring it. We really hadn't been watching over it and making sure it was happening. I found out some teachers were doing it. Some teachers weren't doing it. So I just posed the question to some of my teachers, should we be doing it? And some of them looked at me like, a, like I was an alien and said, what, are you, what do you mean should we be doing it? We have to do it. To not do it is to not be an American. And I posed the question, I said, well, we don't do it as a staff. Like we don't, we don't do it like your husbands and, and wives that work other places. They're not doing it at their workplaces, right? Like it's very foreign to stand up and pledge to the flag every morning once you become an adult. It, it's somewhat expected as a kid in schools, but once you get older, most of you probably can't remember the last time you pledged to pledge the allegiance to the flag, right? And I was just trying to open up the conversation, and there were some who had I move forward with that would have potentially, I mean, just worked to get me fired. I mean, it was that important to them. That gives you a little bit of an idea here. If the Christians were bucking any type of civic duty to the empire, anything that was expected as a sign of patriotism, emperor worship, eating food offered to idols at these worship services. This was a sign that not only did you uh, get it from a Pergamum standpoint, you got it from an empire standpoint, and to not do it meant that you were a traitor, basically, that, that you didn't have allegiance to Rome and you deserved to be killed. We can see that just on a minimal case here in America. It's even greater in other places to not pledge allegiance to your government potentially could bring death in some societies, and that's what the Christians were facing here in Pergamum. It was the worst place possible to be a Christian and to not be a worshiper of the emperor, This is Satan's hometown, according to Jesus. This is where Satan lives. This is where Satan is is really pushing forth his agenda. Um, So really interesting to kind of see that background because that gives some context for what is taking place um, in this instruction from Jesus. Okay, so Jesus draws attention to this church at Pergamum. And he says, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's who the message is coming from. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. The first point that we're gonna look at this morning is that a fear of God is always needed. A fear of God is always needed. For our kids, we need to fear God. and We're gonna come back to that point uh, within our family worship questions a little bit later, but we need to fear God. A fear of God is always needed. Right off the bat, as Jesus begins to instruct, he, he gives this kind of looming and alarming picture, I think, right? Like he says, the one who's giving this message is the one who comes with a two-edged sword. It doesn't typically provide a lot of comfort unless that's a protective type uh, instruction. At this point, you don't know if it's, if it's uh, protective or if it's warfare that's coming. And I think there's a little bit of both that's, that's attached to that. But Jesus identifies himself as the one who's coming with the sharp two-edged sword it's a reference back to where we were in Revelation 1:16. You'll remember? We've said that all these letters to the churches start with a reference back to Revelation 1. They include references to the end of Revelation, chapter 20, 21, 22. And this is no different. In Revelation chapter one, verse 16, in the description of Jesus it says, "In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. All right, so there's a a fear, a healthy fear, hopefully, that's expected when we think about the coming Jesus. And Jesus wants that picture to be uh, front and center for this church because it's very relevant to what he's going to call them to be and call them to do. Jesus's judgment, first of all, is just. As we think about this judgment and the idea of him bringing a sword, a two-edged sword, it's important that we think of it in terms of justice. Hebrews chapter 4:12 gives us a reference to this idea of God and his word being like a sword. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 it says for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account that 's so encouraging if you think about justice and judgment coming from Jesus, because even the best judge, right like Daniel could attest to this with his um, with his profession now in law, even the best, godliest judge still has to try to examine all the evidence and at the end of the day, make the best decision possible, realizing mistakes can still be made. He can't determine the intentions of the heart, no matter how godly of a man he is. All we can look at are the facts. All we can look at is what happened. Now somebody can try to explain their intentions. Somebody can try to describe what they were thinking and we can either choose to accept that or to to disregard it. But Jesus has the ability, when he brings judgment, when he brings justice, it's fair justice all the time because he can determine determine the intentions of the heart. He can see on the inside what was intended to be done on the outside. His, His judgment is just. And so when Jesus comes to evaluate this church, you can't help but think about this passage in Hebrews. And it ought to provide encouragement that before we really read any more, Whatever he's bringing this two-edged sword to do, it's gonna, be, it's gonna be welded and used properly, right? Like it's not gonna be stuck anywhere that it shouldn't be stuck. It's not gonna cut anything that it shouldn't cut. It is going to be used appropriately. Hebrews 4.12 says that it's, it's that type of word. It's that type of uh, active presence and that it can see every crevice. No creature is hidden from his sight. That's an encouraging thing as we look into this church. In fact, in the original language, it's really important that we catch this at the beginning because in the original language, great emphasis is placed on Jesus who comes with this sword. In the ESV, it says the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In the original Greek, it really reads the one who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. Right, there's great emphasis placed on this sword. There's great emphasis placed on Jesus coming with this judgment. Jesus' judgment will harm and heal. It will harm and heal. Right? The, the word of God can bring great healing as it cuts into our hearts. Right, like We come, hopefully Sunday mornings, expecting to be encouraged by God's word, But even where it brings about conviction, it's bringing about a healing conviction, right? Like it hurts sometimes to hear God's word speak to things in our life that need to be corrected, but it's a healing cut, right? It's cutting away things that don't need to be there. It's reminding us of things that have been maybe uh, tolerated in our life that need to be once again expelled, right? It can bring a very healing cut to us, but it can also bring a very harmful cut in the form of judgment. Looking ahead in Revelation, as like I said, many of these letters do to these churches. In Revelation chapter 19, the idea of Jesus coming with this sword is once again discussed in verse 15 of Revelation 19. It's kind of the flip side, this isn't the healing cut. It says, when Jesus comes from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In verse 21, uh, it says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You may remember at the, uh, we've talked about this before in Revelation 19, at the beginning of the chapter, believers are eating with Jesus in this type of marriage feast. At the end of the chapter, there's this, this eating of unbelievers by the birds, right? Like you either come to dinner or you are dinner in this chapter, right? Like you believe in Jesus, then you get to eat with Jesus. If you reject Jesus, then as John Piper was talking about in our video this morning, you're judged forever, Right, that You're judged forever for that rejection, and so Jesus comes with that sword, and so it's a harmful sword, it's a healing sword, depending on the approach that, uh, that we allow it to take in our life based on our response and the Holy Spirit's prompting within us. The Lord comes to bring punishment oftentimes with that sword, and that's certainly the context for what we see in this chapter. So going back to Revelation 2, the letter is introduced with the idea that Jesus is coming. The Jesus that we sang about this morning, the Jesus that we worship, he is coming with a sharp two-edged sword based on the things that he knows about this church unless things change. A fear of God is always needed for us. Number two, (coughs) a faithful witness is always expected. A faithful witness is always expected. For our kids, God calls us to be obedient all of the time. It says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. A faithful witness is always expected. For our kids, God calls us to be obedient all of the time. Number one, they are commended for their faithful witness in the midst of persecution. This is one thing that this church is doing very well. They are staying faithful to Jesus despite the persecution that is coming, even to the point of death. They stood strong. They did not deny the faith. What that tells me, and it should tell you in reading this, is that the majority of their actions were right because it was getting some of them killed. The persecution that was told to Smyrna that was coming had already reached Pergamum. Right, I talked last week. Polycarp, the the bishop of of um, Smyrna, would eventually be killed for his faith. And Typus may have been the bishop of this church, and he'd already been killed for his faith. The persecution had already reached the church at Pergamum, and it means that the church was doing something right for them to be distinguished from Judaism. Right, they weren't falling back into love with the law like. Some of the, the legalistic tendencies that happened from the Pharisees, they were trying to entice some of the Christians to come back and to, to live under the law. So the church had, had refused that and they had lived contrary to the culture enough to where it was getting some of them killed for it. So they were doing a ton of things right. Like we can't discount the fact that they were doing many great things in their community. Enough to get some of them killed. Their lack of emperor worship was drawing the ire of the city. They were living out their calling. They were doing what they were called to do in many cases. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, they're refusing to worship the emperor, and it's leading to persecution. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Peter says, You are called to suffer as Christ suffered, and that's certainly what this church was going through. They were doing many things right, and it was leading to great persecution and even to death. This guy in Typus, we don't we don't know a whole lot about him. He's described as a faithful witness, which is the same uh, wordage used about Jesus in Revelation chapter one. God's faithful witness through His Son, and Typus is now a faithful witness of Christ nothing's really known about him. And a lot of commentators draw attention to that. We just don't know anything about this guy. And I got to thinking, the more I kept reading it in every commentary I looked at, we don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about him. And I'm like, no, we know something really important about this guy. We know maybe the most important thing that he ever did in his life. Think about some of the people we learn about in history, like great inventors. Like we, 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 we learn things, presidents, uh, leaders, sports guys. Like we, we learn about things that they accomplish in their life. But if I started to press you on some of these individuals and how they died, most of us don't know. We don't know the details surrounding their death. Even in scripture, some of the great heroes of the faith, their deaths aren't recorded for us. And typus, all we know about him is that he died a faithful man. He died clinging to Jesus in the midst of persecution. It, it's it's probably the greatest thing that could be known about him, and we have the great privilege of knowing that. I texted Lauren this morning. Um, they're, they're, I would, <laughs> I, I, If we have a boy, if God blesses us with another boy, you know, I, I would love to name him Ap- Apollos. We're naming all of our boys with A names. Um, Apollos is a guy in the book of Acts. Knows the word, knows it deeply, teaches it to others, and if God blesses us with another boy, we might need to go with this name because this guy lives to the end, and he lives faithfully to the end. And he's a guy that we don't even talk about, right? And Typus ought to be a hero of the faith for us. He lived in Satan's dwelling place. He lived around the throne of Satan, and he stayed faithful to the very end. He died a believer. He died a faithful witness. The church is doing some great things. Number two, and I think there's intentionality by Jesus to draw attention to their circumstances, because he's making the point that their circumstances, their situation, does not excuse any misbehavior. He's drawing attention to the fact that these guys have the opportunity to make excuses. "I know where you dwell." Right? Normally, Jesus would say, "I know your works." He says that a lot to these churches. He doesn't mention that here. He says, "I know where you dwell." I think that's important because Jesus, is, you know, Jesus doesn't get a response from this church, right? Like Jesus is writing a letter, and there's not going to be a letter back to Jesus. So it's almost as though Jesus might would anticipate their response here. Oh, you don't understand, Jesus. Like we live in Pergamum. Pergamum's like the worst setting possible. Emperor worship started here, right? Like this is the worst possible situation. Jesus anticipates that and says, hey, I, before you even mention it, I know exactly where you live. And beyond that, I know how serious it is, probably more serious than you even know. I know it's where Satan dwells. I know it's where Satan has set up his throne room. Right? He says, I get it. I understand your circumstances. I understand the odds are stacked against you, but it doesn't leave any room for excuses. Jesus understood fully the unique challenges they faced in their particular setting but he doesn't allow them to make excuses for it. The place of Satan's throne is mentioned here, where Satan's throne is. Um, The place where Satan dwells is mentioned here. It's also, as we continue to read, obviously a place of deception and compromise because you've got stumbling blocks put in front of the Christians here. You've got people who are stumbling over the stumbling blocks. They're falling prey to the deception. They're falling prey to the compromise. This is where Satan lives, It's an awful setting to be a faithful Christian. It's probably referred in this way. You know, I've shared with you the emperor worship. There was a 40-foot altar to Zeus that was constructed in this city. Um, That probably contributed to being viewed as the the dwelling place of Satan. Again, because there was massive amounts of uh, idolatry and um, temples for false worship set up here. There was also a great temple for Ascalipus which also starts with an A, which will not be the name of one of our sons. He was depicted as a serpent. So he's this God of healing that, that's, that's worshiped in this town. Um, but again, it was also the hub for emperor worship. That's probably the main reason that Jesus is so dialed in on the fact of this being Satan's dwelling place, that it was the place of emperor worship. But ultimately what we see here is that Satan is the source of the persecution because this is where he dwells. The odds are stacked against them but it does not excuse them. And so Jesus is very clear. I want to I I recognize your faithfulness. I want to recognize guys like Antipas who, who have uh, done this to the very end. They've been persecuted. They've stayed faithful, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. Number three, a minor compromise is always hated. A minor compromise is, is always hated. For our kids, I put, even little sins need to be confessed by us and forgiven by God, and I, and I put that in quotes because maybe our dads or our moms can have conversations with our kids. We're talking about sins in the form of little sins, not that they are, are less serious and not that they are uh, uh, deserve God's wrath any less, but sometimes we categorize sins, and I think that this church may have been guilty of minimizing the compromise in the church. They were probably viewing this as little issues. Hey, we're faithful. Hey, we're, we're, we have members that are dying, right? Like even as elders, you could justify it and say, I don't have time to deal with these little sins in our church. We've got bigger issues. We're trying to, we're trying to take care of our members who have been killed for the faith and the family members that are grieving. But you could easily excuse the lack of attention being given to these little sins. But Jesus highlights them and says, few things but major things these are a few things that i have against you but they are major in how he views them and how he wants them dealt with they have great importance here what are these issues what are these sins that are being discussed first of all false teaching was causing some to compromise false teaching was causing some to compromise It says, you have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These were the issues that Jesus documents. This church was doing great. They were succeeding against external pressure. They were succeeding. They were being killed for their faith. They were were succumbing to internal pressure, though. They were allowing false teachers to infiltrate the back door, right? And they were giving in to some of these teachings and it was having great effects on their lifestyle. The teachings of the Nicolaitans here are compared to Balaam and the catastrophe of the Old, the catastrophe of the Old Testament. And the people here understood the background. So Jesus can mention Balaam and Balak and, and the things that happened there and immediately these people know what's being talked about. You may not know that which is why I wanted in our small groups this morning, our discussion groups, to talk about it. So let's step back and just pause for a minute. And let's have some of the people that were in that group share with us some background information. What is the story of Balaam and Balak, and how can we take that knowledge and, and kind of get into here with, with what Jesus is saying? So somebody that maybe was in that group that wants to share a little background information for us about Balaam and Balak. may want to do that?
0: Apparently... Uh, Balaam has a history of cursing groups of people and it coming to pass. So Balak sends for Balaam and he wants him to curse the Israelites because the Israelites have already taken and destroyed Jericho and he knows that they're next. So Balaam goes and prays before God and he says, don't curse them. Yeah, Balak. Balak. (laughs) Balak, Balaam prays before God on behalf of Balaam. And God tells him, don't curse them, they're my people. So he sends them back with the message. There was a group of guys that came. And then a bigger group comes and tells him the king wants you to come and curse these people. And he goes and he prays before God, and God says, okay, you can go with them, but you have to tell them what I tell you to say. So he goes with them, and that's when uh, on his way, we never really understood exactly why God's wrath came against Balaam for doing what, He told him to do but then god gets angry at him for going with him and that's where we have the talking donkey where the angel of the lord stands before him three before the donkey three times and the donkey finally says don't you see this angel and balaam finally the lord reveals himself to him so then he goes before balak and balak takes him up and shows him the people and he prays before god and god says don't curse them they're my people and then he tells them that. And then Balak says, well, let's go over here and look at him." And then he does it again. And he does it three times. And every time he tells them, I can't curse them to God's people. But he turns around and pronounces a curse on the Midianites. And then in chapter 31, you just gave us one verse, but I skimmed the whole chapter because that goes like, well. And then verse 20, in chapter 25, it talks about how the Midianite women had started to... Am I keep saying the wrong term?
1: They're both Midian and Moab are involved. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, they start infiltrating
0: uh, sexual immorality with the Israelites, and then we have the verse that Bobby told us is why Phineas is named Phineas. Is one their, they're actually weeping before the Lord in the congregation before the assembly, and this Israelite brings a woman with them into his tent, and Phineas, who I think is a grandson of Aaron, if I read if I remember right, goes in with the spear and just puts it right through both of them. And God had brought a plague upon them because of this, and that ended the plague. So in chapter 31, where Israel actually goes in and starts destroying all these people, you find out that Balaam is killed along with everybody else. And then it also shows that Balaam is the one who went to Balak and said, if you really want to try and keep from being destroyed, you need to start sending your women into the camp of the Israelites and try to woo them over that way. Yeah. So it was actually Balaam's plan for the women to come into the camp.
1: Yep. yep, that's a great summary. That's a great summary. So you've got the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They're starting to mow down the, uh, the Canaanite people, and, and that fear starts to spread. That's where we have Rahab and Jericho. Rahab says, I'm going to I'm gonna run to the God of Israel, right? the Moabites and the Midianites say, you know what, we're going to, try to, we're going to try to battle these people, but we know we need some help. And so they go get this guy, Balaam, who somehow has a reputation of being a prophet who can bless and curse groups of people. And so they try to hire him, just as Tom's saying. And so he shows up, tries to curse, can't curse though. God won't let him. God only lets blessings come out. And so he's making the situation worse for the Midianites and the Moabites because he's just making things better for Israel. Um, on the way, uh, the, the donkey um, is, is headed off by an angel and Um, uh, Balaam ends up having that uh, open, his eyes are open to see that. I think it's important to note that the angel's holding a sword because the the terminology is the same here. There There was a warning. Balaam, don't do this. There's a sword right here to remind you why you shouldn't. And then it's down the road. Balaam can't do it, wants the money. And so he offers a second plan to Balak and says, if you'll send your women to entice them, God will curse them. I can't do it, but you can, anger, you can get their God angry at them for their sin, and you'll get exactly what you want. Kind of a backdoor approach, just like we're talking about here. The persecution, the Roman Empire is trying to persecute. They can't, they can't gain a victory against the church, so they come in the back door. Let's, let's try to pervert the church with sexual immorality, with the idol worship. Let's try to come in the back door and, and wreck this. So it's a perfect parallel to what was taking place. Balaam is killed later by the sword, right? He had the warning with the angel, don't do this. And then he gets the sword later in the story. We find out that he is the one that suggested this to Balak, and that's how they won that victory over Israel. But then eventually, uh, the Moabites and the Midianites, they get the punishment as well with that, with that spear being run through, um, and it ends the plague for Israel. That's the background information here. That's the important background information. Jesus is saying, hey, just like that scenario— where my people were being perverted through a backdoor approach, that is happening at this church in Pergamum. And it's becoming a problem because the people are compromising and they are eating food sacrificed to idols and they are practicing sexual immorality. And these are two topics that are heavily addressed in the New Testament in relationship to the church, and so that's where the other group comes in. So, is there anybody in the second group that read about sexual immorality in First Corinthians, as well as food offered to idols, that can offer us some additional information for how this was supposed to be treated in the local church during that time? How were they to respond to sexual immorality? How were they to respond to food offered to idols? Any thoughts on that? Through
2: it, using it first because in Acts 15 it says don't do it and then in 1 Corinthians you get more of a context where you feel like it's, it's okay potentially and we kind of landed on, on the fact that it seemed like it was really a context issue so if you were uh, around the, as a believer being around food that was sacrificed to an idol you shouldn't eat of that because it, it was harmful to the gospel um, but if you went and got it from a marketplace and then it was food, it was offered to an idol, and you didn't know, and you ate of it, then it wasn't sin. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing with the sexual morality. It was the believer shouldn't be a part of that. Um, and then we read in First Corinthians, where it talked about not uh, even to be associated with these people. So we're all thinking, man, you can't go to work, you can't go anywhere in public because you'd always be associated with those people. But I think the, the heart of it was more of, of not being, involved when it was kind of happening because it would be harmful to the gospel. So uh, not being associated as in going and doing these things with these
1: people. Mm -hmm. And then how did it tie in with sexual immorality? What was the response that the church was failing to do and that they were called to do in 1 Corinthians 5? Any thoughts on that? Yep.
0: There were, in in that case, it was someone who was engaging in sexual immorality inside the church, and it was pretty clear that they were supposed to expel that from the church because of the church's gospel witness that it shouldn't be, appear to be okay for you to say that you're a Christian and also just blatantly engaging these things, um, and that, that person had to be expelled from the church. You know, that the church
1: yep, so the culture of Pergamum was, was impressing upon the church there that there was compromise in the in the area of sexual ethics and Christian liberty. Okay, so both of these things are being attacked by the culture there, and the church is making compromises. And it was big enough issues that Paul dedicates a ton of space to it in 1 Corinthians. I mean, just talks about it a ton. Sometimes we try to take the issue of food and idols and try to relate it to a Christian drinking alcohol or not, and there's some parallels there that, that work, but it kind of breaks down in the fact that, you know, Basically, the idea would be if, if somebody became a believer that was a drug addict and an alcoholic, you probably don't want to go and have a casual drink with that individual, right? Like they've been saved out of some serious stuff. They've abused some of those things. So to just sit down and recreationally do that, probably not the best thing to do, right? But that, that's, that's, that's not often that that's happening where unbelievers are coming to our church and they're coming out of that background, That would have been kind of the norm for people that were getting saved out of that culture, that they had been engulfed in this type of worship. They had been engulfed in believing that the food offered to idols was a spiritual experience. I mean, it falls right in line when Jesus starts talking about the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is a spiritual experience for us, right? Like we are, Paul says, participating in Christ by partaking of the Lord's Supper. There's this remembrance and this spiritual picture of Jesus and his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And so we eat and partake as a remembrance of that. It was a very worshipful experience for them to eat the food that had been offered to idols. And there's guidelines given to it. Hey, if you go to the market and they would sell some of this off after they were done with it, Paul says, look, if you're not asking a lot of questions, you don't really know, just eat the food. Your conscience isn't being violated. You don't have to do a big investigation to find out, hey, was this ever offered to idols or not? Just eat it. But if you find out for sure that it was offered to idols, you need to really step back and and caution as to whether or not you should eat it or not. Because if there's somebody watching that it's going to offend or cause them to fall into sin, because they may look at it and say, hey, I, I used to do that and I got saved out of it, but there's a Christian that's doing it. I guess I can still do that as well. And there was this blurring of the lines with the emperor worship that would have been tied into that. And so Paul's very specific. The The, the council, the Jerusalem council says, don't do it. And then there's some progressive revelation that comes out of that decision where they try to work that out. What does that really mean in daily life? Paul gives us great guidance on that. But that was the issues at, at stake here. There was Christian liberty and sexual ethics that were in jeopardy of, of being conformed to the culture at that time, right? Romans 12, two says, don't be conformed to, to, the, to the world, right? We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We should, we're to be different. Jesus is saying, you should be different in these areas. Um, number two, compromise by some was causing compromise by others. Some of these people are engaging in this activity and it's leading others to stumble into the same activity as well. Their actions were a stumbling block to others, and it was affecting the long-term health of this church. Not only were some falling into the compromise, others were compromising by not expelling them from the church. And that's the issue here, too. Just because you weren't engaging in this activity didn't get you off the hook. Remember, The church at Ephesus, what were they faithful to do? They were getting rid of the Nicolaitans. They weren't allowing their doctrine to infiltrate their church. They were expelling anybody that was falling prey to it. They weren't keeping these people around. This church is tolerating it. They're compromising it. They're not dealing with it. They're not dealing with it the way that they should. And it's causing others to fall into sin because of it. And that's where Jesus' concern lies is that they need to take action against these activities in order to preserve their faithfulness till the end of time. And so Jesus addresses these issues. Somehow they were falling back into this idea of of worship with the food and they're practicing sexual immorality and Jesus tells them to repent in verse 16. Again, no excuses being made here, right? No excuses being made here. You're talking about men in Israel who had women knocking on their door and begging them to come out, right? Like that's that's the the worst stumbling block for a man possible for women to be showing up at the doorstep and asking for you to come out. Jesus says, that's what's happening in this church and it needs to stop. You guys need to quit giving into this and there's no excuse. Hey, gosh, that's that's, that's that's hard. Like That's hard for men to say no in that type of situation. There's no excuses made for them. They're told to repent and to get it right or to get out. That's where Jesus says, if you don't get this right, I'm coming with a sword. I'm coming to bring a sword, and I will wage war against you if you don't fix it. Number three, repentance is demanded in order to make things right. They've got to get this right according to Jesus. Again, this is a church that had people that were dying because they were faithful. And this doesn't excuse the little things that were being compromised. You know, we got some people that are abusing Christian liberty. You know, we got some people that have, have kind of fallen into some, some sexual sin. But we got people that are dying for their faith. And Jesus says, hey, take care of all of it right? Don't be obedient in some things, be obedient in all things. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war war against them with the sword of my mouth. Either make war on the sin or Jesus will make war with you is the message here. Take measures now or Jesus will take measures. And this isn't talking about the second coming, Right, this is talking about a pre-second coming where Jesus would actually come into the life of this church and do something as a measure of judgment. You say, well, that doesn't happen in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't do that type of thing. Well, he did it with Ananias and Sapphira, right? He did it with them, and that's in the New Testament. And he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Again, this is in the context of the food and the idols and the Lord's Supper. And they're abusing the Lord's Supper. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we had judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus is warning the Pergamum church about. You do it or I'll come and do it so that I don't have to do it at the second coming. That's really what's being said here. You deal with the sin or I'm going to come deal with the sin now because if I wait till the second coming, it's not going to be good. You're going to be, be cast off and rejected. That's, that's exactly what happened here in Corinth. And we can't think that it wouldn't potentially happen to our church if we're guilty of any of this. If we're guilty of compromise in the area of Christian liberty or in the area of, of sexual ethics, and if we're also associated with that guilt by not taking action against it, then we set ourselves up for Jesus' judgment. That's the warning here in Revelation to this church. And we could talk about all the great things we do as a church and all the ministries and all the money that we give. And we could say, hey, this is what most defines our church. And Jesus would say, it's the little things that you guys are ignoring that are really important to me right now. And I need you to focus on those. And if you don't, I'll come do it myself. And that ought to be a strong warning to us. The sword that in felt doesn't even compare to the sword that these people would feel if Jesus shows up. Number four, or this sentence, and I wanted you to just kind of be thinking about this. We're not going to, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it. We don't have time. This is a quote by John MacArthur. You may agree or may disagree with this, but I wanted to kind of get your minds thinking before we leave today. Sinning believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the word of God sinning believers. This isn't somebody who sins, we all sin. This is someone who persists in the same sins and is not showing victory in that sin. He says, sinning believers, those type of believers should be made to feel miserable in the fellowship and worship of the church by being confronted powerfully with the word of God. I think that happens when church discipline is really playing out the way that it's supposed to is that people leave the church because they're tired of being confronted by the word and they don't wanna change right? Like that's typically what happens is that when a church is faithfully doing its end of the bargain, and that's what Jesus says, you may not be doing it, but you need to deal with the people that are. If we're faithfully confronting them with the word of God, and, and Timothy talks about doing it, um, doing it in a loving way, doing it in a compassionate way, but doing it, that sinning believers will feel miserable because they don't want to give up on their sin, and they, and they don't want to be in the fellowship and the worship of the church anymore because they're constantly being confronted by the word of God. Number four, an obedient response is always rewarded. An obedient response is always rewarded. For our kids, one day we will enjoy the best rewards as Christians. And that's where Jesus closes this letter out to Pergamum. Tells them they're doing a great job of being faithful to the end for some of them but then addresses the fact that some of them are compromising in the area of sexual ethics and in the area of Christian liberty. It's causing others to stumble. They need to repent and deal with it or he's going to come and bring judgment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is what Jesus says. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, he tells the church at Smyrna but it's the church at Pergamum, he gives even further details to what that means. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'd love to give you a lot of solid answers for what that all means, but there's a lot of dispute and a lot of disagreement because there's just a lack of clarity for us to lean upon in other areas of scripture for this but i'm going to give you what i've got um and hopefully it gives you the encouragement that i think jesus intends for it uh first of all jesus tells us that he will nourish us he will nourish us it says he who has an here ear let him hear to the one who conquers i'll give some of the hidden manna and what is that talking about The one who conquers will receive hidden manna, Jesus says. There's a couple of different things it could be referring to. One, it could be referring to the manna that's hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, right? It's probably not in a warehouse at the end of um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it it may very well be somewhere, right? We don't know what happened to it in the Old Testament as uh, Jerusalem was being sacked. At some point, it disappears. But we know, uh, even from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, that they had kept some of the manna in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder for God's provision in the wilderness. When they're dealing with Balaam, they're in the wilderness eating manna, okay? It's a great correlation to don't eat food offered to idols, eat the manna. They were supposed to be eating manna, but they went and ate idol idol food with the, the Moabites and the Midianites. Jesus says, conquer till the end and I'll give you the hidden manna. Um, it really could be in reference too to the idea of Jesus Himself, because in John six forty eight through fifty one, he correlates the manna to Himself as the bread of life. We don't have time to read it, but I would highly encourage you to read that passage because it's a great correlation between manna and Jesus. So it's hard to discount the fact that when He says, "I'm going to give you hidden manna," that He's not simply talking about Himself. Uh, John six forty eight through fifty one. And it's quite possibly referring to the marriage feast of Revelation 19 where we enjoy Jesus forever and we eat with him and dine with him at his table. Um, it's this idea of you can either eat now or, or eat later. Eat the food now, eat the things of this world now, or enjoy the eternal life to come. And Jesus says, if you'll conquer to the end, you will receive the hidden manna. I tend to think it's it's talking about Jesus and I think it makes sense to tie it to that end time feast because most of the time these letters are referring to the end of Revelation at the end of the instruction to the church. Secondly, he goes on to say, Jesus will receive us. Jesus will receive us. And that's tied to this idea of the white stone. The one who conquers will receive a white stone. And we helped Alex and Jessica move yesterday and at their house... Their flower beds are full of white stones, and so I brought some white stones for our kids because I want them to take them home because it's going to tie in with some of our family worship questions. Can you pass that back to Ava? Um, Just as a visual for our kids to take with us, Jesus talks about giving a white stone with a new name written on it. Um, You say, well, what's that talking about? And and honestly, I don't know um, what it's talking about. I'm going to give you like seven possibilities of what it's talking about based on that culture. They knew what it was talking about. It meant something to them. Jesus doesn't choose to give us any additional information, but I love what each one of these things could mean because it's the gospel over and over and over again represented in what this white stone could mean. First of all, it could have referred to the acquittal in a jury trial. When when the jury would cast its, its decision about guilty or not guilty, they would either cast a black stone or a white stone, the white stone being that that person was acquitted or innocent, right? That's a great picture of what the conqueror will receive when Jesus comes back. We're righteous, we're, we're free from the law, we are not held condemned by the law, we are acquitted based on the work of Jesus Christ, okay? Um, it could also be, Uh, used at times it was used as a ticket to a banquet that you had to show up with this white stone may have had something written on it that let it know that it was supposed to be for that banquet we've already talked about the fact that we are waiting for a banquet with Jesus one day and so this may be our entrance to that banquet and it may represent that idea Um, it could also represent um, oftentimes they were given to slaves who were being released from slavery Perfect picture of the gospel, that we're set free from sin, that we're we're set free from death. We're no longer slaves to those things. Instead, we're now slaved to righteousness and slaved to Christ. They were oftentimes given to winners of races. Uh, That certainly parallels with what Hebrews tells us, that as a Christian, we are running a race, and we hope to complete that race by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Oftentimes, warriors who won great victories were given these stones as well, and that too may be a great picture of what it looks like for us to conquer to the end. doesn't really matter which one you pick. I think all of them are relevant. All of them make sense. I'm sure one of them is right in some form or fashion. The idea here is that this was a token at the end for conquering okay? Um, it's attached with a new name. Again, some vagueness there as to what that really means, but Jesus will acknowledge us because certainly him knowing our name is going to be pretty awesome for us to stand before him in lieu of all the other believers that will gather with him as well for him to know our name in an intimate way, especially if he's giving us new names. Um, there's some references to the new name in Revelation. We may hit on some of those as we get into Revelation, but Isaiah 62.2 And Isaiah 65, 15, both references to Israel and Israel receiving a new name. Just another nod to the idea of Christians being grafted into that, Gentiles being grafted in. That's Isaiah 62, 2. Isaiah 65, 15. Could simply mean a new name like Abram got Abraham, Jacob got Israel, Simon got Peter that designated their character change it could be a reference to Jesus's name because there's several passages in um, Revelation, specifically Revelation 14, 1, 22, 4, that reference Jesus's name being engraved on our foreheads, which left me with an interesting thought today. I, man, we we talk so much about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and and where that's going to be and what that's going to look like. And Man, that's such a focal point when it comes to talking about Revelation. And I was convicted even this morning that I've probably said mark of the beast far more than I've talked about the mark of Christ. But in Revelation chapter 22, 4, talking about Christians, it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. It's the exact opposite of the mark of the beast. Right? The mark of the beast is described as being on the forehead of unbelievers that worship the beast. It says in Revelation 20 verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands right? Books have been written about what the mark of the beast is and whether it's 666 or whether it's a chip that gets implanted in you, and nobody's talking about the mark of Jesus. And that's the one that we want on our forehead, right? Like it's not just about not taking the mark of the beast, it's about having Jesus's name imprinted on our foreheads. That's the idea, I think, of a new name that's given here. Jesus says the conqueror gets that, Wrap up with these implications. I'm just going to read these to you. You can pull them offline if you want to write them down. But I think these ideas flow from this letter to Pergamum 1. Many of the great things you do in life can be overshadowed by a few of the worst things that you do. We've talked about it from a church standpoint. But this is certainly true for an individual standpoint. You can do a bunch of things right and then fail in the end and be known for that. right? We need to weed out sin in every crevice of our life. That so we do not let it take hold of us. It's crouching at our door, God told Cain, and we need to kill it before it kills us. Many of the great things you do in life can be overshadowed by a few of the worst things that you do. Another way of saying that is that great faithfulness in some areas doesn't excuse great toleration in others. Right, the the more sanctified we become, the more grieved we should be over our sin and desiring for Jesus to cleanse that from us. We can't hang our hat on things of past. Paul says forgetting those things and pressing on for that great high prize. Even in the worst environment possible, with all of the excuses imaginable, Jesus expects the people to get it figured out and to repent. Even in the worst environment possible, with all the excuses imaginable, Jesus expects the people to get it figured out and to repent. You may have seen this. I posted it on Facebook this week. I'm just going to read it to you. It seems that we live in a day and age where excuses run rampant to justify affairs, porn addictions, and other forms of sexual immorality. I hear all the time how men today have it so much harder than ever before because of the temptations the internet affords. In addition, we have called many sexual sins addictions, almost excusing the amount of time needed for one to change. Yet the church at Pergamum found themselves living where Satan dwells with the greatest stumbling blocks possible laid before them. Jesus' response, you better cut it out or I'm going to cut you up. The expectation was for immediate change. Let us have ears that hear that message, especially in the midst of so many excuses. Full inclusion in God's eternal plan still remains for those who have failed. And that's the gospel part of this, right? That you could have been a part of the worst group in Pergamum who had given himself to every sin that was being addressed. You could have been the leader of the Nicolaitans. And the call here is that if you'll repent and you'll get it right, you can conquer in the end, right? Like it's not just for the best of the best of Pergamum, it's for the worst of the worst. The invitation was for all to repent and to all eat the hidden manna, to all receive the white stone, to all receive the new name. Full inclusion, doesn't matter how sinful you've been, Full inclusion in God's eternal plan still remains for those who have failed. And then lastly, we can either eat now from the offerings of this world or we can eat later at the greatest feast of all time. Application question. Have I compromised with culture in the areas of Christian liberty or sexual ethics in such a way that I have become sinful in my actions and a stumbling block to others? And the compromise goes two ways. One, it can be that you're involved in these things, but it can also go the other way that you have failed to address these things in the lives of believers, specifically that are a part of our church. It's why our accountability groups are so important and so necessary that we can call these things out as we're called to do and that we can expel it when necessary to protect the others that remain. We can't compromise. We can't because I don't want Jesus to show up. I don't want Jesus to show up before he's supposed to, right? I look forward to the second coming. I don't need some pre-second coming where he has to come and deal with things that we failed to deal with. Our family worship questions, number one, why should we fear God if he is our savior? This is a great time for us to pause and step back with our kids and talk about what a healthy fear of God looks like. And then number two, why did Pastor Adam give us a white rock on Sunday? This is a great chance for you to bring your kids back together, pull the white rocks out and say, Here's what the gospel is, right? Like, we don't know exactly what this white rock means, but let me talk to you about what it means to have a ticket to that banquet. Let me talk to you what it means about being acquitted from all of our sins because of Jesus. This is a great chance for you to step back, share the gospel with your kids once again. Use that white rock as a reminder. If you want to pick one up as a reminder to talk to your kids about it, we've got a little bag here that you can grab at the end of the service. All right, let's pray together. God, we come to you today and... Lord, I just praise you and thank you for your word and for what it does to us. Um, God, as we, as we come to the end now, Father, I pray that we would not simply hear these things and leave and do nothing with it. God, I pray that we would continue to meditate on these truths this week as we look towards application Sunday next week, as we look to C groups the, the following week. God, I pray that you'd prepare us for those discussion times, that you would prepare us to apply the things that we're talking about here. God, we know that we're a church that's doing some things really well. We know there's some things that you would be proud of us for and happy and pleased that we're engaged in those things. But God, if we're doing them out of a, a wrong motivation without love, then God, we know that we need to repent and, and to get our, our motivation back to where it's supposed to be. God, we know that if we're, we're focused on the things that we're doing right and we fail to address the, the shortcomings that we know are there, God, I pray that we'd be faithful to address those shortcomings in ways that need to be done. God, I pray that you would call all of us to repentance. If there's been any compromise, for those that maybe have been involved in the compromise, that they would hear this message, if you called them to hear it this morning, that they would repent. They would turn from their sin. They would start to do the things that they previously have done, as you called churches to do. God, I pray that you would be with those that maybe have compromised by toleration within this church things that we know are happening that we failed to call people to repent of, God, I pray that we would be useful tools by you to call people to repentance in that format as well. God, we don't want to minimize the importance of this because you found it very important for the church at Pergamum. And God, there's no excuses that we can come up with that would justify any of our shortcomings because we know this church had all of the reasons to make excuses and that you didn't excuse them. So God, help us to be a faithful church that examines and deals with things as need be. God, we want to eat of the hidden manna. We want to receive that white rock. We want to be given a new name as you've promised. Help us to conquer to the end. Help us to be faithful, even if it means death one day. God, we know our allegiance is not to this country. We know it's to a Savior who is coming, a King who we await. We look forward to that day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.